a new populist media, breaking away from its corporate ties and going independent, rapidly becoming the top politics podcast greater than the New York Times The Daily or The Daily Wire. What's not to like about that? Especially for those who are criticizing the same insular media ecosystems that we do here on this show. Independent, fact-driven media is better at zeroing in on the target than anything bogged down by the same insular incentives that drive that corporate media. Isn't that right? But this may be winning the battle and losing the war. Quite tragically, we might have just lost our best example of aesthetic arbitrage, something that has been used time and time again in order to reduce the verity of information being turned back in its favor. That is the puzzle of rising and breaking points. A brief catch-up on some core ideas before we get started with today. We've covered last season the idea of redefining terms and perpetual revolution, always seeking those ideas or those labels that the public most positively associates with, and then co-opting those labels for whatever political movement you're trying to push. This is a tactic frequently used in the United States and other countries by major political parties, both left and right. It revolves around a bad faith use of history, where the justifications and the lessons learned from the past are not fully remembered. People hold on to clinging superficial examples instead of the core principle that actually gave them good decisions before. Those aesthetics can then be plucked out and exploited, coding different, more corrupt, more false, or more horrendous ideas as a wolf in sheep's clothing. One excellent example of this, brought to my attention by exactly the main topic of this week's episode, is a report by well-known progressive economist Thomas Piketty. In it, he describes a straight-line correlation between cultural conflict and lack of progressive policies, like expanding welfare or social security nets, as well as stronger union rights. In other words, in the areas where culture is more inflamed and the economy takes a back seat. As we're seeing in the US, which tops the charts, the ability for an actual left to form and to coalesce along traditionally economically progressive values, such as redistribution or labor rights, is significantly lower. The aesthetics of faux liberalism, the appeals towards ideas of equality or ideas of justice without the actual policy in return, is the most effective thing at preventing those exact policy successes from ever occurring. It's easy to spot this tactic being used in the day-to-day. -day. It isn't necessarily anything that either party tries to hide. Take the recent Biden attempt to brand their welfare package as infrastructure. As I said when I originally covered this topic, I have nothing against welfare myself, 
To me, it's just a neutral term. But that isn't the case for a lot of Americans, particularly right-wing Americans or right-wing-leaning moderates. This means that they have an ideological aversion to the term welfare. But if Biden uses a different word to describe it, even if he is implementing the exact same policy, then those who don't dig to the bottom may be fooled by this naming choice. Hence the use of the term infrastructure for things that have never been referred to as infrastructure in the past. But what does this all have to do with a hot new news podcast? For those who are unaware, Crystal Ball and Sagar and Jetty collaborated previously with The Hill, a mainstream online news outlet, in order to produce Rising, which was essentially a show that provided political commentary and interviews from a populist perspective. This became one of the more successful shows on YouTube, particularly among the top ever for any legacy media outlet. A truly unique opportunity arose, where just coincidentally, people with ideologies that appealed to the broader public, to the social mores of the past, were able to capitalize on their production and on their connection with this broader company in order to end up with a truly unique show. But that wasn't necessarily where the hosts wanted to take it. In the last two weeks, they ended their ties to The Hill, going off and starting their own independent show, Breaking Points. They did this using an independent subscriber model, and the most frequently cited problem that they had with Hills Rising is the undue political influence that they reported it had on their editorial decisions. Essentially, influence from other sources, from other politicians possibly, or corporations that had broader interests in the Hill's reporting and ties to the internal management, attempted on several occasions to interfere with what actually got covered on the show. This is a regular critique of insular media establishments, and one that I've made on this program several times before. But as I alluded to in the introduction, this may not actually be an overall benefit to those who share a political interest similar to Crystal or Sagers. This is why the transition of this online news show is a lot more than just a niche political story. It holds dire implications, particularly for those in my audience who already hold some sort of institutional power. A recurring theme on this podcast has been the ability for those holding institutional, particularly media, power to override and exploit pattern-matching algorithms that people use in order to try to discern information. We particularly dove into this in Season 4. However, the core point is fairly easy to summarize. The pattern-matching algorithms that people use the patterns that people like to draw, whether it's analogy, whether it's history, whether it's transferring a skill or an idea from one domain or another, can be easily taken advantage of, particularly by those with enough distribution power. 
A core facet of this is the distinction between matching by art and matching by math. Here's what I mean. Matching by art is taking the aesthetic or superficial aspects of a particular idea and using it in order to determine whether something upholds that idea or not. An excellent example in contemporary politics is the use of superficial diversity, in which groups trying to signal their adherence to open liberal values recruit a variety of different category or demographic groups, while minimizing the actual ideological diversity, which is the point in having people of different backgrounds in the first place. The redefinition of terms phenomenon is another example of this effect, and you've seen from the start of the episode how easily this can be exploited in order to turn media that is in name beneficial to one cause into the thing that destroys it. The alternative we prefer on this show is pattern matching by math, looking at the technical effects that different strategies have and using those to identify what's going on and where it could lead. This type of evidence-driven sense-making is not the norm though. The vast majority still hold deference to the institutional model, outsourcing ideas to those that they trust, those that have the aesthetics and the legacy branding in order to earn their views. What Rising with the Hill represented was an opportunity to use that aesthetic arbitrage to target that audience in particular. Crystal and Sauger even mentioned it themselves when they talked about the high production value of the set. However, it was so much more than that. From the scripting choices, to the networks, to the algorithmic biases, to Ward's those institutional sources. The parts of the show that much of the online community despised was exactly the malware that helped it become adaptive to audiences who had that prerequisite conditioning towards institutionalization. One of the greatest tools in American insular media's ability to divide and conquer is its chameleonic effect encoding an arbitrary affect to their coverage, regardless of the story. And for once, there was a chance to parasitize off of that, though now the opportunity may be lost. This was a technique that I may have more subtly implied in several previous episodes, including my inaugural one. That is, that one might need to adopt the superficial tendencies of existing strategic groups in order to ultimately change policy outcomes. In practice, what this means is something like establishing a counter Black Lives Matter that stands for what the movement is associated with in the vast majority of people's lives. If you have a separate group of African Americans who start a different version of Black Lives Matter, a different organized structure, 
that supports police reform, that supports ending the drug law, that fights against qualified immunity, and does not extend to the often explicitly partisan, explicitly authoritarian, or otherwise destructive nature of the existing Black Lives Matter group, then it can pass itself off as the actual thing, as that organization is what people are actually holding in their minds when they think of Black Lives Matter, not the existing organization that we have now. This brings us to a term that an acquaintance of mine, Patrick Ryan, coined as the Butterfly War. What he claimed was that there would have to be an ongoing tactic to manipulate metadata in response to various social media algorithms. In other words, by micromanaging the data that you feed into your social media network, you could force the algorithm to recognize you as something different, perhaps an accredited news organization, perhaps someone who would not pay as much for a toaster on Amazon. Abuses of these types of aesthetic data that are used to gain a real advantage. I'm going to take my liberties with this term and, ironically, redefine it to a much broader range. Because, as we've learned in that season 4, search engine optimization, the targeting of keywords for browser consumption and for trying to get a specific page increased in rankings, doesn't just work on search algorithms, it works on people. Modifying these aesthetic terms is not only something that can be done with regards to social media strategy, but in all forms of media and politics. Now we move to a unified idea of what communication looks like in the exponential online world. You already have the network effects that I described previously. The compounding, exponential growth that you get when you share an idea through a social network, but with it comes three vectors of transmission. We've mentioned all three of them already. Number one, proof of work. Proof of the evidence required to get to a result. Number two, proof of story. Looking at the tales, looking at comparisons, analogies, error-ridden but still useful means of communicating information that is often the largest part of human learning. And finally, proof by authority, looking towards an established social institution or for a public consensus in order to decide on your information. Once again, also an easily exploitable heuristic. Even more specifically, we build on this model, on the ideas that we had before, by looking at the bridge between these methods, specifically targeting how we get someone to go from thinking institutionally to thinking evidentiarily. And that involves the thing in the middle, proof by story. This manipulation of pattern recognition is exactly what I've been trying to build up throughout season 4 and as a recurring theme. I'm just a little bit personally disappointed that one of the most interesting test cases 
has decided that they want out of the game. This isn't to say that I have any grudge against them. It's perfectly reasonable not to want to work in that situation. All that I'm saying is that they may have underestimated the power that they held in the balance. Although, certainly, they have a new adventure on their own now. With that said, you know the drill. This is the most important thing that I ask you, and the one that I just don't forgo. Share with a friend this idea or this show. Particularly, someone who would have an interest or direct benefit from learning about these ideas, which I think is more people than you would expect. Today is a bit of a shorter episode, and you can put that time to use. However, I think certainly the amount of content that we covered this week is much more concentrated and could use a bit of time to unpack, as well as to go through some of the ideas that I didn't bother repeating from all of season 4. Starting off with the 15 numbered episode called The Investigation Begins. I guess I should also recommend you to look at Crystal and Sauger's show Breaking Points. I'm not getting any type of sponsor for this, there's literally nothing that I'm getting out of this aside from the fact that they gave me an episode's worth of content and a bunch of insightful ideas to examine for the future. And, as always, if you do any of those things, it really does matter. And of course, thank you.